future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Welcome, welcome. It is Friday, April 8th, 2022. A special happy birthday goes out to my dad. That's right. Uh, it's his birthday today. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop podcast. This is our Friday news roundup, politics roundup. Yes. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Yes, indeed. You can smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Um, just a little forewarning today. Uh, we'll have a little bit of more of a condensed show today for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, for those of us out here in the east, I think this uh, big chunk of Pennsylvania got hit by this and the east coast too as well. <clears throat> we had some crazy storms last night and uh, we had uh, our internet uh, was really sketchy um, all morning. It seems to have stabilized a little bit now, which is good. Um, but on top of that, uh, our refrigerator decided to crap out last night too as well. So um, I had to spend a bunch of this morning uh, dealing with that and going to have to kind of buy myself a fridge this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> so needless to say, the morning was pretty packed and uh, it was a little rushed getting prepped today. And so um, I decided to kind of condense the show a little bit um, based on what we had. And it's unfortunate because this week was pretty uh, kind of crazy news week. Anyways, so on today's show, we're going to talk a little about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, they just released a new report. Yep. And they warned that the Earth is, quote, firmly on track toward an unlivable world, saying that unless dramatic and radical action takes place in the next few years, it is next to impossible to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, as is laid out in the Paris Accords, all right, and makes even the two degrees warming kind of unlikely. <laughs> the IPCC said uh, they have, quote, high confidence, so unquote, that unless countries make radical cuts in fossil fuel emissions, the planet will be on an average 2.4 degrees Celsius to 3.5 degrees Celsius warmer by the end of the century. That translates to about 4.3 to 3, uh, 6.3 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, this is a quote, quote, a level experts say is sure to cause severe impacts for much of the world's population. You wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't even know it. I kept on thinking, can you imagine if our news media and our politicians treated the climate change, the crisis of climate change, of the global climate change with the same degree of seriousness that they're treating the Russian invasion of Ukraine? And this is the last, I'm the last person around that is going to say that what's happening in Ukraine should not get the coverage, should not get key coverage. But it's not the only freaking thing, people. <laughs> and we need to respond. We need to take this kind of energy and 
deal with it, a, a whole, these problems across the board. Anyways, I go on forever for this. Anyways. But it's official. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed as the first black woman to become a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. That's impressive. Um, they even got three Republicans to vote uh, for there um, so that they can help build their brands out as the quote-unquote moderates. Um, whatever. And horrifying scenes in the Ukrainian town of Bucha emerged this week as the world now has to confront the full scope of Putin's war crimes. It's devastating. And a new Amazon communications app for workers, yep, bans words like union and bathroom and justice and slave labor. <laughs> for real. So now if a worker says like, hey, I'm... I, I have to kind of step away from my station for a minute because I need to go to the bathroom because he's trying to alert or she's trying to alert one of the, uh, you know, their co-workers just so that they know that just now just goes into the void. God forbid they say, you know what, working for Amazon is like slave labor. No, nope, that message doesn't go through either. Like, what are these people thinking? They also, I don't know if you saw this too, like the Zen booth they got there. Oh, are you a worker? Are you a little stressed out at work because we're working you too hard? Well, here's a little box that you can go into and put yourself in solitary confinement for a few minutes in hopes that will relieve your stress. Insane. And I uh, got a limited number of stuff in Pennsylvania stuff. There's a bunch of things I wanted to talk about, but it's just going to take me too long for today. Uh, this, like some, some of what's happening right now, it's even heating up when it comes to the... Um, State Senator Katie Muth's lawsuit uh, against PSERS. I mean, this was filed. This is not kind of a recent filing, but it's kind of coming into, you know, you know, the 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 kind of the corruption at the center of what happened to PSERS is pretty crazy. But we'll get into that. Maybe, maybe. But the uh, newly merged Pennsylvania Western University, you know, that was formerly California University, Clarion University, and Edinburgh University. Well, they decided, you know what? Uh, students are now have to register for their fall classes beginning like now. And so they thought, you know, a couple days before students have to register, they're going to launch a brand new registration system with a brand new app without having really tested it. And guess what? Problems ensue. Yes, indeed. We got the ethos. The ethos of Pennsylvania Western University is taking on that Silicon Valley ethos that Chancellor Greenstein brought with him. Yeah, you know, you got to break a few eggs. You want to make an omelet? You got to disrupt it, you know, then break stuff and smash it and then see where stuff comes out of it. We'll make it work. Oh, yeah, I know it. It puts people's lives in hell, but guess what? It's cool. <laughs> and we get to analyze the data from the disruption. It's how they work, man. It's how they work. Some stories emerging out of there are just crazy. Yes, in today's last call, or actually there's only be one segment today, but uh, this is what I part of what I want to talk about last call. Today, probably as we're recording the show, probably any minute, well, actually it's 11.17, I think, a.m. is when uh, uh, SpaceX is launching the first fully private mission to the International Space Station. It's in uh, the four-person all-male crew is part of Axiom Space's AX-1 mission. Uh, Axiom Space is a private company, um, and it seeks to make, quote, living and working in space commonplace, unquote. And this is from the article on, uh, from Gizmodo on this. Uh, quote, Axiom describes AX-1 as a precursor private astronaut mission. 
It's the first of four proposed missions, all of which are stepping stones for the company as it looks ahead to the construction of its private or orbital outpost, dubbed Axiom Station. Construction of the station is scheduled to begin in 2024, a succession of mod modules that will be incrementally added to the Harmony node of the ISS, unquote. Okay, we're going to talk, we will talk about this a little bit here because this is precisely, what is happening right now is precisely the kind of things that have been trying to lay the groundwork over the past couple of years when I'm devoting to focusing on this kind of galactic capitalist moves that they're making, but we'll get into that. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune in the Rick Smith Show's live stream, 9 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your streams, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, you know. And subscribe to his podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. Rick Smith was on as a special, we did a, two shows on Monday, uh, this past Monday for Out the Coop Live. Of course, we had David Backer was uh, scheduled to come on on Monday. We talked about his awesome piece in Descent Magazine called Toxic Finance. It's looking at... Um, the, the, the financialization of our public schools. Um, it's, it's a fascinating piece in dissent. And frankly, I, I, I'm just like, I'm so glad I reached out to him and have him on the show because I learned so much on the show on Monday in ways that totally make sense. And the work that he's doing is really, really um, just, just top notch. Um, you get into the weeds a little bit, um, but that's the whole point to understand what is happening in the financing of our infrastructure of schools. Uh, it's critical to understand the way that this, it, it just kind of tied right into the same exploitate, exploitative Wall Street mentality that uh, we've been subjected to for decades. Anyways, we also had Rick Smith on on Monday as the second show for that. Um, because as you know, last week, we talked about this last Friday, um, Rick Smith decided, okay, look, he couldn't take it anymore. He's going to blow, blow the whistle on the uh, newly appointed uh, president of the Pennsylvania AFL-CIO, Frank Snyder. And uh, there had been a history of allegations of sexism and abusive behavior on his part. Um, Rick has been receiving um, messages, multiple messages and stories um, about how they have been mistreated by Frank Snyder. And uh, Rick is calling for his removal. And Rick is calling for um, uh, outgoing president Rick Bloomingdale um, to issue a statement that allows uh, the women um, who originally filed um, complaints, but now they're covered by, you know, confidentiality laws or kind of non-disclosure agreements. Um, basically, he wants uh, Rick wants uh, Rick Bloomingdale to issue a statement saying allowing those women to come and testify before the investigation of his past behavior, um, so they don't put themselves in legal jeopardy to expose the kind of uh, craziness. Um, that um, they experienced, the abusive behavior. Um, so check out our show, our two shows from Monday. It was kind of really good. Um, and uh, I was glad we were able to get Rick on kind of really uh, right shortly after he laid all that out. Well, it's official. We're into it now, actually. Season two of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is flooding the streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women that's stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. Yes, and uh, one of the sisters of the Night Caucus will be joining us next week on Monday. Talk about that in just a sec. Attention gamers, The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black-family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, and kids get A's. Or when kids get A's on the report card, they get a discount. How awesome is that? 
Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at TheGameIn. That's with two N's. You got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's with two N's, at @songadayman on Twitter. And in programming notes, uh, yes, as I was saying, Monday, April 11th, this coming Monday at uh, 7 p.m., Shanna Danielson will be my guest on Out to Coop Live. Uh, she'll be back on the show. I'm so excited. Shanna is a middle school t- uh, If you don't know, I mean, if you don't know who Shanna is, this is who she is. <laughs> Uh, she's a middle school teacher, South Central PA. She's a former candidate for state senate uh, and state house. And in uh, 2019, she's a graduate of the Emerge PA program, uh, which is a phenomenal program. She currently serves as secretary of Democratic Party of York County, is vice chair of the Northern York Democratic Club, member of the Democratic State Committee for York County, and elected auditor for Carroll Township, and has been recently appointed as a Southern Region PACE director for PSEA. And of course, Shanna is one of the awesome co-hosts of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. Uh, Shannon will be on the show, and we're going to be talking about uh, an article from um, Marley Parrish uh, wrote this for the Pennsylvania Capital Star, and uh, Shannon was one of the uh, teachers interviewed for it. And we're going to be talking about the uh, teaching shortage in Pennsylvania, and frankly, and across the nation. And we're going to dig into the conditions that are driving more and more teachers to leave the profession and fewer and fewer students choosing to become teachers. Uh, and yes, COVID exacerbated those conditions. We all know that. But the crisis in our public education system runs much deeper. And we've got a major election coming up, uh, midterm elections in the fall of this year, to, uh, 2022, um, that this is all tied into, too, as well. And then I hinted at this before. I can't remember if I exactly mentioned it last time. But on Monday, April 25th, I know that skips a week, but we'll have something else um, kind of in between then. But Monday, April 25th, uh, Daisy Pitkin will be joining me to talk about her new book, On the Line, a story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to build a union. I have said this on Twitter, and maybe you saw me uh, tweet this stuff out, but I have to say this is one of the best, well, just books like kind of kind of memoir type accounts of labor movement that I've read in ages. I walked away from this book just kind of feeling the hope, the struggle, the devastation, the energy, the power, the solidarity. The I mean it was just it was packed. It's so well written, it's so engaging and like Daisy really kind of puts like a voice to like some of the critical issues that are are necessary for building the labor movement right it just it's just a phenomenal book um so she's going to be on the show on monday april 25th um and so do join us for april 20 um for have her on the show because she is uh she's fantastic uh the book is fantastic and i'm she's actually an organizer she's a union organizer uh she's based out of um Pittsburgh right now. She was uh, the story that she's telling in this book is during her time as a uh, kind of a young labor organizer in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, when they were organizing laundries. Um, it just it's just great. Um, and if you've been following stuff in the labor movement, if you're close to follow what was ha- what happened down in Phoenix, it was also one of the sites where we saw these kind of like um, epic internal battles between um, two different unions that tried to merge and then kind of it went horribly wrong. Um, and she got caught in the middle of that too as well. So it's it's a really kind of old holds bar look at um, what that experience. Is. It's just excellent. Um, there you go. So look, everybody. 
If you like this content, you like having folks like that, like Daisy Pickin, Shanna Danielson, David Backer, Rick Smith on the show. Well, you know what? We need, you know, if we want to progress the future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Just go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight. But we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement the media. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply head on over to patreon.com slash RC Press today. And want to remind you, we talked a little about something the show last week. Uh, you can head on over to ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Um, and check out the Raging Chicken Community Fund. Raging Chicken Community Fund is where building out kind of a, a support network to help fund organizing, to help fund progressive candidates in Bucks County. It's time to reclaim our school boards from the extremists. You see this kind of, well, I, I can never point in the right direction. That way. <laughs> that image up there. Um, time to end extremism in our school boards. That is our campaign that we're working on. We want to fund organizing on the ground, deep uh, deep canvassing in our neighborhoods, uh, particularly in the uh, Penridge and the Palisades and the Quaker Town and the uh, Central Bucks region. We want to put in, uh, start raising money to help build out those campaigns and help fund the organizing. You've heard us talk about this for a long time on this show, about the need to make sure that we are, you know, building a sustainable movement uh, from the ground up. I put the link in uh, the chat for today. I'll put a link in today's show notes too as well. Um, if you can spare five bucks, 10 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, um, or if you know some donors that are looking to help fund kind of organizing and are looking for a, a vehicle for which to do this, um, you know where to send them. Send them to the Raging Chicken Community Fund. You can get there by going to ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Ooh, that's a lot of announcements. I think it's you know it's one of these one of these points where I'm actually going to have to uh, start scaling down my announcements. You know what I mean? Uh, it's uh, every once in a while I'll go through uh, kind of announcements and the things I want to put there and just have to condense it because it just seems things are growing and growing. Um, very crazy. Uh, Emily writes right off the top of the bat. You hear about Musk and his insider trading. Do you think he'll have any consequences? One justice system for billionaires and another for the rest of us. That's absolutely right. We also saw the concern. One of the things I was going to talk about, I was going to put in the show, but I just decided to cut because I, I have limited time today, um, was that Elon Musk, you know, just bought out was I think it's 9% share in Twitter now. Um, so he's now the majority shareholder in Twitter. Now, it's not a majority of all the shares, but he's, I should say, he's the largest shareholder of Twitter now, which gives him a kind of, you know, the ability to put the thumb on the scales. Um, it, yeah, Musk is, I mean, yeah, he's, I'm sure he's going to have insider trading. Do I think he's going to face any consequences, Emily? Absolutely not. Um, you know, somewhere down in the future after our kind of, you know, uh, whatever, this little blue marble that we all live on starts to collapse into kind of despair and destruction. Yeah, maybe then, <laughs> right, when it doesn't matter very much anymore. Um, sorry, I'm a little bit... Uh, Got a little bit of, uh, well, I don't know, what would you call like a combination of kind of cynicism and anger at the same time? I don't know what you'd exactly call that. Cynical anger, anger, I don't know, whatever. Um, but I got a little bit of a dark cloud. But thank God, I have to say this, and thank God it is an absolutely gorgeous day where I'm at today. Um, it, the, it's been so gloomy and uh, like even on Wednesday, I had such a bad migraine that I had to stay home for work. I worked from home. 
Um, I tend to get these ocular migraines, right? When I, you know, major weather changes or pressure changes and things like this. And it's not a good idea to drive when you have flashing lights that kind of like, you know, obscure your vision. It's not great working on the computer either, but at least it's safe. <laughs> so anyways, anyways, anyways. Um, so this week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this is the uh, impetus for my um, cynical anger, if you will. Um, they issued another report. And um, that report, let me see, that report was uh, pretty devastating. You know, it was... Um, Look, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing, it's not that we don't know, right? You know, and that's the, uh, that's the hard part of all this, right? It's like, this is not, this is not new. Um, we should not be surprised. Sorry, I was just grabbing my thing. But I, let me just, just kind of read this off. This is from grist.org. Um, um, and this is their discussion of their thing. Now, their title of their article is We Are at a Crossroads. New IPCC report says it's fossil fuels or our future. Um, I think the AP, uh, the AP version of this, I think, was even uh, more on there. It says UN warns Earth, quote, firmly on track toward an unlivable world, unquote. Um, but nonetheless. So here's uh, here's just the uh, the beginning. Nations have moved too slowly to curb climate change and now must take swift and aggressive steps if they are to hope to avoid the worst impacts of global warming, the world's top scientists warned on Monday. Greenhouse gas emissions must peak within the next three years. Three years must peak. That means this is as high as they can get, and then it's got to come down. It must peak within the next three years and in the next eight, the world must push fossil fuels aside, rapidly scaling up the use of clean energy like wind and solar. It is only through these, quote, rapid and deep, unquote, emissions reductions, they said, that the world can get on track to reach zero, net zero emissions by 2050 and avoid a 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit of warming. Right. That's been the target. We know this um, after in 2018, you remember the IPCC re uh, report came out. And that was the first time scientists basically said, OK, look, it's enough. We're, we're not getting any traction here by just kind of reporting what's going on. We need to make it clear what the implications are going to be. Um, that was the fall. The report that came out in the fall of 2018 was widely seen as like like, you know, the alarm bells. Right. Scientists are kind of like, look, this this is it. And we saw what these devastating effects were going to look like. And, we, and part of the battle over that kind of the last the last round of, uh, of talks um, and leading up to um, that thing was like, look, these these uh, these these countries, low lying countries, uh, island countries, like one like two point originally. Remember, originally the Paris Agreement was even supposed to be two point uh, two point oh degrees of warming Celsius of warming. And yet they're like, look, that's a death sentence. Two degrees of warming means that the sea level rise will basically sink and like and overwhelm their island nations. So you're basically saying we we're gonna we have, we're gonna have sacrifice zones of entire nations, entire peoples, and they got it down to say okay we need 1.5 degrees of warming. Okay, great. Now that's in the text. That's a good thing, but nothing has happened. Virtually nothing has happened, and things that have happened are not happening fast enough. And so now 
here we are. You know, you remember, I don't know if you remember this, but there was that little glimmer of hope right at the beginning of COVID because basically everything shut down. So people stopped traveling, right? We stopped burning as much fossil fuels and we saw for the first time in certainly the 21st century, a, a, a dip in emissions. And, you know, there was this like glimmer of this moment of like, man, it, 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 this, this horrendous pandemic is upon us. And, and, and if if this becomes this opportunity to address climate change once and for all, I mean, maybe this is our wake-up call. And you know what? As soon as things started focusing to, we need to reopen and masks are oppression and all this other kinds of stuff, no, nope, it went right back to it. As a matter of fact, we've seen emissions start climbing uh, rapidly all over again. And overall emissions are up. So, I mean... I don't know what it's going to take. So anyways, so a new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, a United Nations body of leading climate experts from around the world, highlights key strategies countries can use to to drive down greenhouse gas emissions and remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There is no time to lose, the report authors said. Although emissions are rising more slowly than they have in previous years, humanity has lost precious time to drive down climate pollution, and even with the most ambitious policies, there is now only a 38% chance that the world will stave off a 1.5 degree Celsius rise in temperature. This is a significant decrease from 2018 when the panel predicted 55% chance of staying below the threshold. We are at a crossroads, IPCC Chair uh, Ho Sung Lee, an economist at the Korean University, Seoul, uh, South Korea, told reporters. We have the tools and the know-how to limit warming and secure a livable future. The new report is the final installment in a three-part assessment from the IPCC. The body's previous reports detailed both the current and future catastrophic impacts from climate change that warned that time is running out to adapt to them. This week's report focuses on mitigation and what we can do to halt climate change. Right. So if you remember, we talked about this when it, when it came out at the time, um, back in the fall, that the warnings were stark, right? The report is clear, as is was the uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who said, you know, look, it's political barriers. Well, this is actually not a direct quote. This is from the Grist article. Political barriers, rather than scientific, monetary, or technological ones, are currently holding the world back from urgent climate targets, the report stressed. Although some countries' policies have helped avoid significant carbon emissions, world governments are still disproportionately investing in fossil fuels rather than renewable energy. Remember, we talked about this last week, about how the, the doubling down, and actually two weeks ago, too, as well, when we had um, Jessica Corbett on the talk uh, from Common Dreams, about how uh, you know, you've got this sudden pressure for the fossil fuel companies and from the kind of investment bankers pushing on the Biden administration to respond to the uh, Ukraine crisis by doubling down on fossil fuels, building out gas pipelines and so on. That's basically a death sentence, right? I mean, that's basically th this report should underscore that what Jamie Dimon, what these kind of investment bankers, what the fossil fuel industries are saying about kind of the need to build build out our fossil fuel infrastructure to respond to the, um, the, uh, the crisis in uh, Ukraine. That's the solution. No, it's not. It's not even a temporary solution. Right. It is one that is uh, it's it's sticking our head in the sand when we have no time left. So I have to say so that's got me a little bummed out today, uh, as you can imagine, uh, reading through that a bit, too, as well. However. 
in the topsy-turvy back and forth gaslit world that we live in, right? Not being able to kind of like, you know, live in a space of both catastrophic futures and kind of, um, you know, challenges to dem democracy itself, the emergence of authoritarianism, white supremacy. At the same time, we get something like this. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed as the first black woman to ever sit as a justice in the U.S. Supreme Court. Which is, you know, I mean, you know, Cory Booker, Cory Booker's always been just a little bit over the top for me. You know what I mean? He's like, he's got that kind of like, you know, I drank too much of the Kool-Aid at Disney kind of, uh, kind of affect to himself. <laughs> you know, he's just like, you're not going to kill my joy. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, like legitimately, absolutely everything he says, right. I mean, when he said to, uh, to, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson that, you know, this is historic and told the story. I mean, totally appropriate. Boom, 100% on. I'm just talking about that, that kind of like that super excited kind of like, like wide-eyed, like Disney-ness. <laughs> just kind of, just, it just doesn't sit well with me as a person, but whatever. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I think he had it right. I mean, we, we need to be able to see the joy for this is despite the absolute insanity that came from Republicans this past week about trying to link her, basically saying she's soft on pedophiles and say that anybody who disagrees with Marjorie Taylor Greene is somehow a pedophile, right? Uh, I mean, all that kind of nonsense. This is a, the main thing. And I don't know how many, how much of the hearings you watch, but this woman is, this. she's, she's outstanding. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to put it. <clears throat> her thoughtfulness, her composure, her, <clears throat> her knowledge, the way that she thinks about problems, I mean, that's incredible. And I believe I want to I don't I'm not sure if it was Thurgood Marshall or not, but I mean, she's the first justice in like generations that has experience as a defense attorney. I mean, let let's let's be I mean, this is really kind of important. Not only is it, it not only is it historic because she's the first black woman to, to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court like, holy crap, it took this freaking long. But not only is that historic, think about this. She's not only a defense attorney, she was a defense attorney that represented, right, the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Right? And when she talked about, she's very clear, look, our justice system requires, right, that you have to have a significant defense, that you cannot just have kangaroo courts that you just railroad people into jail or the death penalty for, you know, I mean, you can't just do that. Especially when you have a serious case, because all of them, it's much more important when you have a serious case to get a strong defense, to make sure that justice is served. And she did that. And let's be clear, that was not a popular thing to do. But she believed in the law, believed in that role, believed that they, that they required a defense because of that belief in the law. Now, look, the, the Democrats right now are, are falling over themselves to talk about how she had support for the police, police unions, how she got support for conservatives in the past. I wished for once, right? This is why I like what Cory Booker had to say, okay? It's like, I wish for once, instead of trying to tell the public that, look, it's okay because the some Republicans came on. Instead of talking about the freaking Republicans, can you just kind of kick them out of that free space, that free rental space they've got in your brain and just talk about her? 
who gives a crap if the insane people on the right like her or not? Fine. They voted for her. You want, is it more important for you to tell a redemptive tale about Republicans or about the quality of this justice that we're just putting on the, ta- putting on the court and how significant that is? How in comparison to the last three appointments on the court, this woman is like leagues above them. And that the only thing that the Republicans could do is is hawk conspiracy theories, QAnon conspiracy theories about her to ramp up their base. This is like the opportunity to basically point out, if anything, you're going to deal with the Republicans about what a freaking lost cause they are. Instead, you've got all these people like trotting on to talk about like the redemptive value of like Mitt Romney. Give me a break. Or you have to kind of somehow say, look, it's okay. The police unions kind of even got behind her. Okay. <laughs> you don't need to make that case. What? Where's the story? I mean, this is what drives me insane. I mean, again, I watch this is, I try to watch some at least cable news, right? Why? Because so many people are getting their news through that way, Right. So I think it's important to understand the narrative that's coming out of cable news, whether it's CNN, MSNBC. I can't stomach Fox for, for much long, so I get my, my Fox News secondhand. I'll admit that. But I try to kind of at least kind of follow that stuff, right? And then, or NPR for that matter, even NPR. is like you get, you know, NPR and the way that they frame the discussion and that the way that, you know, uh, Democrats will come on and kind of praise. They'll start by uh, praising uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, but then it quickly goes into like a redemptive story about some Republicans or, or how it's, how how great it is that the police supported her or um, how important. I mean, again, it's like this freaking bipartisanship fantasy that they just can't let go of. And it shows you the kind of absolute kind of emptiness to the core, the hollowness of the Democratic Party leadership that they don't have something to stand on. Instead, they just have to point to the other party and say, see, they say it's okay, so then I guess it's okay. Come on. Other thing I didn't put in today's show notes, which I, which, which I wanted to, but I just, I, frankly, I didn't have enough time to really dive deeply enough into it. We saw AOC come out this week and basically saying, look, no more of this kind of conflict of interest. We shouldn't be able to have like alleged, you know, uh, representatives or senators kind of like, you know, trading in stocks that they're making policy that are going to influence the price of that stock. And she basically basically said, like, come on, everybody knows this. This is freaking, you know, this is nonsense. This is corruption at its core, you know, basically. Um, instead of saying like, well, you know, some Republicans also think that this is a good, come on, I'm so tired of that narrative. So we shall see. We shall see. Um, I agree with you, Emily. I hope that her dissents are going to be, um, good. And frankly, look, you've got, you know, the, the three kind of non-right-wing appointees on there are all women, right? And, you know, I think that we've seen, um... We've seen some really uh, um, strong dissents come out already. Um, I think, you know, Kagan has been kind of ramping up her game. Um, and, you know, but I, you know, I think that we're going to see these um, 
we're going to see these ascents fleshed out in different ways. And I can't remember who, I, I, I want to say it was uh, Ian Milheiser, but I don't know if it was him or not. But what uh, it was one of these interviews that I was hearing with some of the, you know, these court watcher people that were saying that, you know, um, if you look like at Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Elena Kagan, and now uh, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, the, the three of them uh, have, they kind of come at the law or come at some of the problems that have come before the court in kind of different but complementary ways. So my hope is that uh, we're going to see these kind of fleshed out um, critiques and dissents that are going to cover different angles on these cases and dissents so that we're not just going to have one RBG, right, but we're going to have three, right, that are going to, um, as as a kind of team of dissenters, um, can really help lay the groundwork for, uh, you know, a future in which, you know, the far right doesn't control the court, you know, which is, you know, whatever, a generation away, but still this is necessary. So anyways... So there's that. Um, the other horrible stuff this week, of course, was that in the uh, Ukrainian town of Bucha, uh, I'm sure people have seen this. I'm not going to go into details about, you know, about the devastation there other than to say, um, you know, now the world really has to kind of confront massacres, um, war crimes, um, the the extent of those war crimes, the stories of people. Um, I saw, you know, there were people, Ukrainians who survive the uh the russian massacres and, and occupation of the of, of bucha and um were going around the streets with their cell phones trying to kind of record what they saw the bodies um how the bodies were found right so it's clear that several of them uh were assassinated at, at point blank range you know the mass graves they're trying to preserve the evidence for um kind of to bring these people to justice i mean i just you just think about that can you imagine that you're documenting that horror. I mean, I just, uh, after witnessing it, I mean, the, the, the images and the, um, the stories listening to, you know, listen to a lot of, uh, some of the reporting where they're interviewing, uh, people that survived this and they're talking about their experiences and it's just been, uh, it's just been devastating. Um, uh, Timothy Snyder was on uh, Chris Hayes' show last night, and um, he is convinced. Remember, Timothy Snyder is the one who does all the work on a kind of authoritarianism. Um, he's done just, uh, you know, he's on qu uh, shows quite a lot. Um, he's written quite extensively about uh, rise of authoritarianism, how to recognize it, how to resist it, and things like this. Um, he's out, of, I think he's in Yale. Um and he was on there last night and he's saying he's pretty convinced that the only thing that is going to uh, the only thing, only positive outcome of this war at this point is for Ukraine to defeat Russia. He's convinced right now is what the, the, the they're seeing is that as Russia kind of re, re, kind of regroups its troops, troops in the east of Ukraine. And it looks like that they're going to try to kind of hold down those two what have been called breakaway republics. But, it, you know, that's a really complicated term that suggests that they willingly wanted to as opposed to being part of a scheme, but whatever. Um, that they're, the Russians are going to dig in at that point and do more there of what we saw in Bucha, what we saw in Mariupol. Um, and to say that we need to, you know, the West and the rest of the world needs to double down behind Ukraine to defeat Russia, to drive them out of the country. Um, that's going to be important moving forward because the, the kind of the, the 
kind of brutality we saw in Bucha. And we're going to, I think, what we'll, we keep on hearing reports that this is the case at other places that the Russians occupied too as well. We're going to see more of that. Um, and this is not over. <sighs> yeah, up and down, huh? Uh, and then great article by, uh, I think it was Ken Klippenstein this week uh, in The Intercept um, about this Amazon communication app that, uh, so this is great. The title, I was read here, the title of his piece is um, Leaked, New Amazon Worker Chat App Would Ban Words Like Union, Restrooms, Pay Raise, and Plantation. Also, Grievance, Slave Labor, This Is Dumb, Living Wage, Diversity, Vaccine, and Others. Right. Diversity. Yes. That, you know, diversity. We want that. Right. <laughs> we want that. And Amazon's largely kind of like, you know, uh, like non-white workforce. Right. Yeah. We want diversity to be in there. Oh, my God. So I just want to read a couple, uh, just a couple paragraphs from this because it's just great. So uh, this is Ken Klippenstein's piece in The Intercept. Uh, Amazon will block and flag employee posts on planned internal messaging app that contain keywords pertaining to labor unions, according to internal company documents reviewed by The Intercept. An automatic word monitor would also block a variety of terms that could represent potential critiques of Amazon's working conditions, like slave labor, prison, plantation, as well as restrooms. Uh, presumably related to reports of Amazon employees relieving themselves in bottles to meet punishing quotas. Quote, our teams are always thinking about new ways to help employees engage with, engage with each other, unquote, said Amazon spokesperson Barbara um, M. Agrate. Quote, this particular program has not been approved yet and may change significantly or even never launch at all, unquote. In November 2021, Amazon convened a high-level meeting in which top executives discussed plans to create an internal social media program that would let employees recognize coworkers' performance with posts called shout-outs, according to a source direct, uh, with direct knowledge. The major goal of the program, Amazon's heads of a worldwide consumer business, Dave Clark said, was to reduce employee attrition by fostering happiness among workers and also productivity. Shoutouts will be part of a gamified reward system in which employees are awarded virtual stars and badges for activities that, quote, add direct business value, unquote, document state. At the beginning, Clark remarked that, quote, some people are insane star collectors, unquote. But company officials also warned of what they called the dark side of social media and decided to actively monitor posts in order to ensure a, quote, positive community, unquote. At the meeting, Clark suggested that the program should resemble an online dating app like Bumble, which allows individuals to engage one another rather than more forum-like platforms like Facebook. And it goes on. It's just, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Right. The list of things, uh, you know, here's like some of the words that are banned. Right. Uh, so the, we talk about vaccine unfair. Right. I don't care is banned. Right. Slave freedom banned <laughs> as a word. Injustice, ethics, fairness, diversity, banned, 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 banned. Threat, banned, prison, banned. This is dumb, banned. <laughs> Oh my God, my God, it's just as crazy. Now let's remember, this is also you know coming out the week um, that you know Amazon, the week of Amazon's huge historic victory, right? Uh, you know, um, just un unbelievable. One of the largest labor victories, like it's probably you know some people have said since the sit down strike in Flint, or as significant for there. One of these amazing organizing victories, five thousand workers. 
incredible. Um, and now, like, you know, people starting to freak out. So, you know, this is one of the ways they think about manner. Like, as if maybe workers are unhappy because they're treated like crap. Right. How about that? Right. This week, they also brought, uh, you know, Starbucks brought their CEO back. The old CEO to come back. And I don't know if people saw this. I should have put this in there, too, as well. But um, what the, what the hell's the guy's name? I'm just spacing his name out. Um, this was awesome this week. Um, awesome in the kind of like dark dystopian kind of awesomeness. Right. Um, um, let's see. Let's see. Uh, oh, God, my bad, my bad. Uh, Howard Schultz. Yes, of course, of course. How could I forget? So Howard Schultz basically kind of tells everybody he's brought back on, right, to sort of solve the problem. And he goes out to like a like a, a town hall and says things like, you know, hey, how many of you out there are digital natives? Right. He's like using this language. This is like great. This is what's beautiful about that is that that is like that Silicon Valley speak where it means something. These people inside where they're thinking they're all hip and on the cutting edge. Right. Even though digital natives as a term is kind of relatively old now. Right. So his hipness kind of peaked maybe at 2000 or something like this. Right. So he comes out. How are your digital natives? Barely anybody says anything. And then he goes on this long, well, you know, digital natives, me not being a digital native, I had to use it. But how many of you know about NFTs, right? You know, the non-fungible tokens, right? And like just a few people are like, yeah, I guess. And then he goes on and you think there's going to be this like announcement, like this is how he's going to improve life and how, you know, for, for workers, because they're all freaked out of all the the, the uh, Starbucks workers that are organizing, right? Um, more, I think there's like whatever, 12 more or something like this filed just in the last day or so. Uh, for union stuff. And so he basically says Starbucks is going to get into the NFT business, right? They're going to start producing NFTs. And you're waiting for him to say like, oh, yes, and this is going to like the the proceeds of these NFTs are going to go back to the workers. No, he's just telling them so that they can be excited for him that he like was, you know, his younger friends told him about NFT and he got excited about it and Starbucks is going to do it, too. He's trying to sell these NFTs to their employees like it's a new iPhone thing. It just freaking was crazy. And it's like, and like he's speaking to workers that are like, yeah, okay, buddy, you know, whatever. But that, you know, this kind of app, these these freaking, you know, kind of whatever, self-isolation cells that they're putting in Amazon. I mean, whatever. These people are so out of touch with what workers need. It's incredible, which is why Amazon's victory is so historic, which is why the Starbucks workers uh, union victories are so historic. The undergraduate students are now unionizing at unprecedented levels right now. It's amazing. Right. I mean, so we're at a, a we're at a historic moment for the labor movement. Right. Um, to take the reins. And, you know, this is why it was important to have Rick Smith on this past week, too, as well, because the question is right now for the labor movement is labor movement going to look ahead. Right. And kind of join forces with the folks like we saw, you know, Chris Smalls and we saw always have the Amazon, the Amazon labor union and that Amazon organizing, organizing effort, the Starbucks workers. Right. The kind of the kind of the, you know, the amazing worker uh, organizing that's being done by Workers United or SEIU, you know, I mean, or is it going to look backwards, you know, and kind of pretend that, you know, the, the union movement is just for kind of, you know, uh, white guys. That's really like, you know, the 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 inflection point we're at now for the labor movement. But whatever. Um, that was pretty that was pretty amazing. Um, Amazon's uh, victory was just absolutely incredible. Uh, one note from um, from PA that I just wanted to put this on people's radar. So um, did I did. No, here. OK, 
So, you know, we covered this pretty extensively. And, you know, frankly, I, I, I have reached out to uh, a number of people who um, faculty members, staff members, uh, people who cover labor or who are somehow connected to these things. And it's been in incredibly difficult to find people um, who are organizing um, on campuses against these mergers, right, at the state system of higher education or, or having, you know, uh, or having discussions with uh, kind of with union folks that um, is not couched in kind of very, I don't know, careful language, right? Um, and, you know, again, you understand it to a certain degree, right? You know, you don't want to, you, you know, some leaders, some, you know, kind of union folks um, are concerned that if they're, you know, if they're seen as like, too critical, then things could get even worse than they are, right? You know, so they're trying to kind of be right, reasonable and rational. I, I think it should be pretty clear about whereby, you know, where I fall on this stuff. I mean, you know, I think that the new Teamsters president, for example, um, you know, is showing us a different direction, right? Basically, no, no. You say you're going to you say you're going to be militant. You say you're going to kind of resist. You say you're going to organize it. Then you do organize. Right. You follow what they did. You know, when Amazon looked at Chris Smalls and the other folks, the Amazon Labor Union, they basically said, oh, they're not very bright. Right. No one's going to follow them. Ha ha ha. Boom. Biggest union that's out here. Right. They're going to organize anyway. They're going to organize from the ground up for the grassroots because the power is in organized workers, not in kind of, you know, like, I don't know, uh, union leaders access to policymakers. Right. Yeah, that's that's kind of important down the road. But unless you've got a power that's built from the base up, what the hell does that mean? Then you just become another functionary in that kind of in that system. Anyways, I'm getting so far off track here. So so they went ahead. The mergers are happening right in the fall. They're officially going to uh, be merged universities. And out on the western end of the state, it's the the Penn West or the Pennsylvania Western University is the title of that. Right. And um, that was the combined uh, the the combined universities of Clarion, of Edinburgh and California. Right. Um, I actually got kind of hold of some of these interesting documents, though, too, as well, that are kind of at least suggesting that. Well, actually, I'll, I'll wait. I, I, I sent something out about this. It's interesting to see that in some documents that they filed before middle states, uh, it, it, these are the eastern universities. It was said that, oh, no, both eastern and western. Um, did not say that, you know, oh, the new university, Pennsylvania Western University. No, they said that Edinburgh and uh, Clarion are being merged into California University and that Lockhaven and Mansfield are being merged into Bloomsburg. And that's how the stuff is being submitted to middle states. Um, but I'm sure there's complicated reasons behind that. But that's just that was one of those things that, uh, huh, that's interesting. So anyways, this is just more example of Silicon Valley think that has infected our uh, state system of higher education. Right. The idea is that you just go and you be disruptive and you break stuff and then you figure it out as you go. Right. Be damned to the experiences of the people that have to deal with your disruption. Right. And your kind of ability to play with this and study the outcomes of this disruption that you've wreaked on us. Um, there's a there was a really good piece in the uh, what's it? The Clarion it's a Clarion student newspaper, I believe, or maybe it's the, let's see, no, Clarion, no, it's the Edinburgh newspaper. I'm sorry. Uh, it's called, I'm sorry, Clarion Call News, right, uh, out of Edinburgh. This is what got me confused. So 
the students are at the point where they're registering for fall classes, right? So I'm like at Kutztown, I'm in advising and all that. And this is happening across the state system of higher education. So you have to register for your fall classes. And that's starting now. Uh, registration, I think, uh, on our campus starts either started today or, um, or like early and then later stuff here. So that's HEP2. Now, remember, part of the concerns is nobody was sure about what programs are going to stay, what classes are going to be offered, which classes are going to are going to stay on your specific campus. Like if you're an Edinburgh student, is that class that you need to take going to be a class that you can go into a classroom for? Or are you going to have to log on to some sort of app in order to kind of like zoom in to a class that's being held at Clarion in order to fulfill that requirement for your program? Right. None of that stuff has been worked out. Right. Um, and here's just a, a window into how unprepared. Now, look, ABSCUF, the State System of Higher or the uh, um, Association of Pennsylvania State Faculty University or University Faculties, right? My union has been raising these concerns for as long as these merger questions are out there, saying, look, the planning is not there. We have all these unanswered questions, right? They're, and they're not being answered. And we're keep being told that it's going to be fine. It's going to work out. We'll get that when you come here, right? Well, here's what it looks like. All right, so this is from the from the, the Clarion Call News. Um, great article written by uh, Emma McNeely. So Edinburgh, Pennsylvania Western University, or Penn West, is continuing its, its next steps leading up to the official launch of the Integrated University on July 1st with the unveiling of the new website, the Penn West Experience Portal, and new email accounts. With scheduling currently three days away, the brand new site will be used by all students to register and schedule for the upcoming fall 2022 semester, right? Brand new site. Nobody's used it before. It hasn't been tested by students. You don't know what the problems are, but here it is. On Tuesday, March 22nd, the university's marketing and communication office, okay, sent an email to all Edinburgh students with directions on signing on, signing into their Penn West account for the first time and a chance to look at available classes under the wing of all three sister campuses, right? You can just see this. These people try to put a smiley face on everything, right? Um, so whatever. So to set up their Penn West student account, students have to download the Microsoft Authentication app. And then on the app, they must select Add an Account followed by the worker school account. Next, students must scan a QR code to sync their account on the app on their mobile device, authorizing the new account, right? And this is all on the student. It's all on the student. They have to do all this stuff. The student-wide email also clarified new student email addresses and usernames. Student emails will now end in penwest.edu instead of their home campus. For the Penn West Experience Portal, students will use the same username and password for their home campus site. For example, if the login for your My Edinburgh portal is AB123456, that will now be used for your Penn West portal as well. What happens if there's two things that are the same for different campuses? That's a great question. When it comes to new student email accounts, they're not automatically set up as the email states, right? So you got this new email, but it's not set up. Right. And it says, quote, please note that your Penn West account is not yet an email account. Students will receive Penn West email activation instructions later this spring. But to answer student questions, a chart was provided showing how the emails will be changed. If students attend Edinburgh and their current email is whatever, uh, their Penn West email account will be this. Right. So instead of it being scotts.edinburgh.edu, it'll be pennwest.edu. 
I love this part. So Timothy um, um, Peluski, registrar for the Office Records and Registration, sent an additional email that included further details, including identifying time tickets for students on their new site. For those wanting to look at classes on the site, steps were listed. Click on student self-service, student profile, registration, and then browse class schedule to begin, he said. Registration for fall opens on Monday. Um, this is, oh, this is this past Monday, actually. I thought this was there. All right. Um, blah, blah, blah. So under the Penn West, where's this other part? So here, so in light of the new changes, the Edinburgh Now Instagram page offered students the chance to submit anonymous responses to the question, have you had trouble accessing uh, the Penn West portal? Several students took the opportunity to voice their personal experience. And here's the where it gets good. Quote, I got attached to the wrong campus and no one told me. I go to Clarion now, apparently, one student said. Some Edinburgh students did not have access to their Penn West portal account temporarily after they were being registered with their distance after they were registered with their distance ed information from the California or Clarion online accounts. Uh, I'd like to know who designed the site and why make us use it right before scheduling, another student replied. Or even if it can be fixed before scheduling. We needed to schedule for the fall, only 10 days away. And it appears that the new Penn West website has been a stress for those scheduling and registration. In light of this, another email was sent to students about registering um, in, in regist registration in their new Penn West portal. According to the email, students need an uh, need of extra assistance can attend registration Zoom help sessions. The sessions will be held on Tuesday, March 29th from 2.30 to, I think this is from before, right? Um, and so there you go, right? So this is kind of documenting this kind of uh, this stuff that goes on. And I guess I, I should have said this was this was from like like uh, the week before last, which I just got flagged on this week. But that just shows you what the rollout is. So at this time, what already students are kind of like toward the end of the semester, the workload is increasing, and now suddenly they're kind of like as if they have all the time in the world to be devoting to kind of like troubleshooting this app to get their fall classes, and then finding out that they're getting registered accidentally through the wrong campus, and then being locked out of their ability to choose their classes. How about that? Congratulations, Chancellor Greenstein. You are a model of uh, you know innovation and uh, forward-thinkingness, sir. There you go. And this is how you do it. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> All right. Last thing I want to mention today, too, as well. Um, like I said, we're going to have a little bit of a shorter show today. Um, but what normally would have been on our last call would be um, SpaceX. It should have happened already, actually, by now. They are launching a fully private mission to the ISS, the International Space Station. Um, it's being launched by this company called Axiom. Um, Axiom is a, uh, a private for-profit company. And um, they are, have this four-person crew. What makes this, you know, there have been private citizens that have come before, but this is the first time there's been all private citizens, right? So they're not, none of them are like NASA pilots, everything. Although there's a former NASA ISS program manager um, who is the uh, company's CEO, right? Um, a former NASA astronaut um, uh, and Axiom vice president will be on there. So you can see how, you know, turning your public service into private goods is happening right there. Um, here's what this mission is about. So Axiom describes the AX-1 as a precursor to private astronaut mission. It's the first of a four proposed missions, all of which are stepping stones for the company as it looks ahead to the construction of its private orbital outpost, dubbed Axiom Station. Construction of the station is scheduled to begin in 2024. A succession of modules will be incrementally added to the Harmony mode node of the ISS. Upon the retirement of the ISS in 2030, the space station will detach from the outpost to, quote, form the world's first free-flying, privately developed, internationally available space station. 
the central node of a near future network of research, manufacturing, and commerce um, in LEO, um, that's um, uh, low Earth orbit, according to Axiom. The AX-1 crew will spend 10 days in space, eight of which will be on board the USS segment of the ISS. Uh, the crew will run scientific experiments, perform commercial activities, and promote STEM education. Right. And there's a bunch of actually, I mean, you took about the science of it, so much of stuff is really interesting, right? So as Axiom explained in a news release, data collected in flight will impact human understanding of human physiology. They got these 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 helmets that actually can read brain waves and stuff as they're looking at what's the impact on the on on the brain waves, uh, what's the impact on um, say, are there any neurological differences um, for weightlessness, that kind of stuff. Um, they're looking at these kind of fully automated um uh modes of building uh, kind of additional assembling satellites or um additional modules in orbit um it's a thing that's called a tesserae or the tessellated electromagnetic space structures for the exploration of reconfigurable adaptive environments that's what the this thing is about they're going to be testing some of that stuff out um they're doing collaborations with the mayo clinic cleveland clinic montreal's children hospital uh, a bunch of kind of stuff like this right so there's a lot of things that are going on here's the key right there's two things that are important here so number one is that while this is launching today and it's a kind of a novel of its own, right, because it's the first fully private thing, the decommissioning of the ISS, right, so you have this, this seamless transition, right? Axiom is basically starting to building out a for-profit private space station. And then in 2030, the ISS is going to be brought into and it's going to be kind of it's going to burn up in orbit. It's going to be a controlled descent that they're taking out of commission. And now the only way of doing research is to do this through Axiom or I mean, China has got a space station, too, as well, that they are uh, they are assembling right now. And the key is, as a private for profit company, all these experiments, all the science that is doing here is no longer a public good. It is now a private good. When NASA, the ESA, the European Space Administration, when they were conducting these experiments, the International Space Station, that was done in the interest of the public. Those, the findings of those experiments became all of our knowledge for scientists to kind of build on their scientific knowledge and think about adaptability and all that. Kind of, it became something that was publicly owned. And now... They're clamping that down. This is one of these small steps, which I've been talking about now for years. It's like we're and I think that, look, unfortunately, I think it's going to be true that most people are not going to pay attention to this and most people are not going to see it. And it's going to happen incrementally. And so by the time people see that it's a problem, it's going to be too late. It's already too late in my in my view. Right. Um, because, you know, frankly, um, most of the critiques coming on the left or the kind of the liberal to left end of things are be like, why are we spending all this money on space exploration? Right. We should be spending it on X, Y and Z. And I hear all that. Right. Um, but I, my belief is that the cat's out of the bag. My belief is that this is, you know, we got to do better than just like we should be doing something different. There has to be a kind of a concerted effort to pay attention to this stuff and to kind of intervene in it, which, you know, again, in my small way I've been trying to do. Um, I've got a class that I'm working on at Kutztown um, that uh, that, you know, we'll see if it ever gets passed um, that will focus on some of this stuff. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm just become so critical um, to kind of engage in because I'll tell you, the uh, the billionaire class is already like so far ahead on this one and they are actively in the process of crafting policy 
right, to facilitate the privatization of, of space and then eventually um, the moon. We already saw that with the Artemis Accords. If you remember the Artemis Accords, where these new accords, the accords of the willing, if you will, <clears throat> about the Artemis space program that's going to establish a permanent presence, U.S. Presence, uh, presence on the, the moon, right? The Artemis Accords, <clears throat> people, you know, said, oh, we got these new accords. It was great. But the thing is, is that the Artemis Accords kind of fairly consciously uh, work to kind of displace the Outer Space Treaty, which was signed back, in, I think it was 1967, right? The Outer Space Treaty talked about the publicness of space, that no one can own space and so on. The Artemis Accords seek to roll some of that publicness back, right? Want to kind of like start to bring in, say, questions of property rights into that um, equation. <clears throat> Why does that matter? Just let's let's kind of like, I don't know, pull the thread for, a, for like a, a, a few decades, if not like more further. Let's say, supposedly there's, there's some scientific research right now are saying that there's this uh, H3, right? Hydrogen 3 on, on the moon in kind of pretty substantial qualities. <clears throat> on Earth, it's fairly rare. On, in space or on the moon, it's abundant, right? H3 could potentially be used as a fuel, right? In particular for, I believe it's for nuclear, um, um, uh, what was it? Nuclear fusion, Right. Um, and a bunch of other stuff that could make it incredibly, incredibly valuable. If you can't own the moon and it's there for the public good, right, then there has to be a democratic deliberation over what's going to be the use of that. Right. And now my assumption here is that they're going to continue and they're going to mine this stuff. Right. And hundreds, if not thousands of people are going to lose their lives in that process. I guarantee it on the trajectory that this is going because they've got a dystopian trend that they're going to start say, Hey, come and work on the moon for six months and mine H3. And then you'll serve blah, 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 blah. And they'll burn people out. And they'll do, you know, that's where I think we're going. But anyways, unless we say, no, no, we're going to insist upon a democratic framework, right? That's why the outer space treaty was done under the, uh, the, um, the province of the UN instead of <clears throat> um, being done as private corporations. So the Artemis Accords came forward and they basically started to whittle some of that away. And so if, if you, even if it's just a matter of saying, OK, yeah, you can't own the moon, but this mining company can own the contracts for this. You think about what they do with natural gas. Same thing. Can own the mineral rights of this segment of the moon. They're not owning the moon. They're owning what's underneath the moon. Right. That's what they do with the that's the fracking companies do. Right. And they're using a very similar logic there with the Artemis Accords. At least they're opening the door for that. And so then you're saying, I have a company that is going to go and is going to start mining this. Stuff. Let's just say they hit a few veins of stuff that's super valuable. Instead of that being used for the common good. It's now going to be used for the private good for profit. That's why I keep on calling this galactic capitalism and galactic capitalists. And that's really good. Now, there, there's a fail version of this where they go on the moon. It turns out that this is just all big fantasy and it's just going to be a complete waste and it's not going to be profitable, all that other kind of stuff. But, but greed is a big motivator. And especially when you've got some kind of crazy libertarian ideology behind it you know, where they're going to go for it. Let's just say that H3 
hydrogen, like hydrogen three, or let's say just some other element that becomes super important. Let's say there's a huge deposit. I don't even know if this is the case, a huge deposit of some kind of element that they need for solar panels, right? Or they need for uh, uh, kind of, you know, electronics or something like this. There's a huge kind of vein of it there, right? And now they control that. One company controls it. Right. I mean, this is like the, the repercussions of this are potentially really, really devastating. So anyways, this is a, a small piece of that. Right. We can see this <coughs> as another moment where there's an active switch from public to private. Right. Um, and in a way that I think most people are not going to recognize and not going to I'm not going to pay attention to. I'm not going to see. And then we're suddenly we're going to be confronted with this very different future. So. Yeah, Elysium. I know. <laughs> I know Emily, yes. Anyways, uh, everybody, that's what I got for today. Um, uh, hopefully, we're going to be able to dig in some of the space stuff a little bit more um, when days go by. It's just been, man, it's just been weirdly busy lately. Um, and then I'm going to get out of here and um, uh, go try to find a refrigerator. I try to go shop for one before, uh, before I have to go pick up my kids from school. So it's like, whatever whatever. It's one of those days. Uh, listen, I appreciate everybody who's uh, who's tuned in today, who continues to tune in and continues to support our show. Uh, remind you that you can uh, head on over to patreon.com slash RC press. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. And I can't even tell you how much I appreciate um, those folks who step up and support progressive media right here um, in Pennsylvania, right here in Bucks County, right in our own backyards. And I want to remind you too, as well, look, if you want to help contribute to on the ground, like progressive-based grassroots organizing, um, you should really should be checking out, say, the Raging Chicken Community Fund, right? The Raging Chicken Community Fund is uh, going to be raising money to help invest in progressive, elect progressive candidates, invest in progressive organizing, and help build out our progressive infrastructure um, in a sustainable way. And one, um, sorry, let me just, I'm putting it right in the show notes again today. Um, community fund, and here's the link for it. Oops, wrong one. Here's the link for it. Throwing it in today's chat. Um, again, that's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. You check that out. You can help donate, um, and you can help build out that fund so we can help elect progressive candidates. Our our first campaign that we're going to be running through this is going to be reclaim our school boards from the extremists. Um, this is I'll, I'll read this to you as a way of closing out. Um, this is what this campaign is about, especially if you're listening to this, um, if you're um, listening to this or, or, you know, watching it right now. It's like in Bucks County and across Pennsylvania, right wing money has flooded our school boards, promoted extremism and division in our communities. Our children and their futures are being put at risk by a vicious vocal minority. It's time we take back our school boards. It's time we had some people-powered tools to elect Democrats and independents who are committed to high-quality, inclusive education for all children. It's time we end the domination of right-wing money, tipping the scales to the extreme. We deserve school boards that fight racism, not pretend it doesn't exist. We deserve school boards that fight for critical thinking, not internet conspiracy theories. And we deserve school boards that fight for expanding access to different perspectives, cultures, and histories, not ones that ban books from our children's libraries. We deserve school boards that 
that fight for a multiracial democratic future, not a whitewashed idyllic past. This fund will help amplify the voices of the candidates and school board members we deserve and expose the lies of those candidates and school board members who embrace a toxic agenda of right-wing extremism. If you want to know more, if you want to kind of consider it, if you want to make a quick donation, head on to ravenchicken.levelfield.net and give you all the information about what we'll spend the money on, on what we'll invest in, um, and questions you might have. Um, there's a link for it. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, I'm going to slowly make my way toward the, you know, appliance shopping of the week. Gotta love it. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy this amazing day if you're out my way um, and through much of the area. Um, we'll see you on Monday with Shanna Danielson. Until then, everybody. See ya!